it is such a joy to be here. <laughs> it really is. I add my welcome to you all. Good morning. Uh, Sundays really are the best days of the week for multiple reasons. But before we begin and turn our attention to our text this morning, I just want to take a minute to say to you all, thank you. As Jamie and I, along with our kids, Adeline, Henry, Benjamin, if we transitioned here to Louis- from Louisville, Kentucky, uh, the welcome and the support that we've received has been overwhelming. Uh, the sheer number of people that came that first night to help us unload that truck in record time. Uh, I think we did our entire 26-foot truck in like eight minutes. <laughs> you helped us unload, you, you helped us unpack, you organized, you brought us food, you helped us rearrange. We were just so grateful. Uh, and we're grateful not only for your help in moving in the transition, but for the welcome. Despite the chaos that transition can have, uh, you have been a stabilizing force in us feeling like we're home. From feeding us to introducing yourselves to us, it's just been a really smooth landing because of your support. It's reinforced in our hearts a key reason why we came back here, because we love this body. We love this church. So I want to say thank you, Emmaus Road Church, as you continue to be a clear expression of the gospel to my family, and to the world. And your hospitality and your generosity are such a clear evidence of grace in your life that communicates so clearly to me. So I thank God for all of you. So with that, would you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16, 17 through 20. And out of reverence for this word, as we, as we close out, we come to the end of this letter of Paul to the, uh, the church in Rome. We recognize that this is the very word of God. This is not just Paul scribbling down some thoughts, but God communicating himself in particular ways to particular people and ultimately to us. So out of reverence for that, would you please stand and join me and hear as I read Romans 16, 17 through 20. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out For those who cause divisions and create obstacles, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good, and innocent to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Lord, we are dependent on you. We're dependent on you for every breath, for every heartbeat, for our mere existence, but This morning particularly, we're dependent on you to receive your word. Pray that that grace would flood us, your spirit move among us to open our eyes to see the wonderful things in your word. Help us to receive, obey, and trust in you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In 2002... The hit movie Catch Me If You Can was released. D. 
detailing the extraordinary life of Frank Abagnale Jr., played by Leonardo DiCaprio, one of the most infamous, infamous con artists in American history. The movie highlights Abagnale's ability to charm, to sweet-talk his way into and out of all sorts of progressively crazy situations. What starts as small-time schemes, like profiting off of a line of credit for car work that was never done, escalating to impersonating a Pan Am pilot, a physician, a lawyer. Nobody ever figures out how he's able to pass the bar in Louisiana. And is finally caught by FBI agent Carl Hanratty, played by Tom Hanks. With the prospect of federal prison before him, Abagnale strikes a deal with the FBI to serve as a consultant in the hopes that his unique talents will serve the authorities in catching the next fraudster. And throughout the movie, Abagnale's schemes get more and more ludicrous. You, and you find yourself asking, how did he get away with this? How did he convince all of these people? How is he able to hoodwink all of these people? So he's not only able to skirt the authorities, but he also swindles the best and brightest among us. Pilots, lawyers, doctors. Did anybody stop and ask questions about this guy? Anybody look into his background, figure out where he got some of this stuff? But that's the danger of swindlers, isn't it? They're good at what they do. As we come to our text this morning, we find that the central aim, Paul's central aim in writing this particular letter to the believers in Rome is to strengthen them by defining and defending gospel doctrine, describing Christian discipleship, and promoting gospel proclamation. But here at the close, right in the middle of the list of names that Greg so admirably read last week, he's listed the names of all these beloved saints. He drops a warning against deceivers. This text, in the flow of Paul landing the plane of the letter, may feel abrupt and out of context. However, look at the preceding section, ending chapter 16, verse 16, where he says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. This kiss was clearly a sign of love, of unity, of affection and harmony with the believers. But in verse 17, he says to those very same people to watch out for those who would cause disruption to that unity, disruption to that harmony, and create divisions. Paul understands that there are plenty of Frank Abagnales out there and with much more sinister ambitions than just financial gain. So Paul does not want to leave his letter without being clear about the dangers that exist in the Christian or in the world. Here is what I believe is Paul's main point to the believers in Rome and ultimately to us as well. The path to victory over the evil, deceptive and divisive world is marked by wisdom and obedience to the God who reigns supreme. I'll read that again. The path to victory over the evil, deceptive, divisive world is marked by wisdom and obedience to the God who reigns supreme. So as we unpack this warning that he has for us, we will see that Paul gives three commands, both explicitly and implicitly, to bolster and strengthen the faith of the believers. First, stay away. Two, stay alert. And finally, three, stay assured. So number one, stay away. 
Paul breaks the chain of his greetings with a typical Pauline language of appeal. That, that word used in verse 17 means to appeal or to urge or to exhort. He jolts his readers with a signal of urgency. And what is his appeal? Well, there are two of them in verse 17. First, watch out. Be on the lookout. And what are they to watch out for? Verse 17 describes these encroachers that would steer believers away from the faith. And his command to watch out for or to look out for or to mark well those, these dissenters requires the Romans not to be passive, but to be proactive and on the front foot. They're not to be caught unawares of the danger that is natural in the Christian life. Paul then describes the action of the dissenters as well as their motivation. The reason Paul warns Christians to watch out for these people is that those whose aim it is to divide the fruitful gospel community in Rome and make it difficult to believe, trust, cultivate the gospel amongst them. That, that's their aim. They want to disrupt that flow. You see, Paul understands that what you believe matters. What you think matters. How you make sense of life and, and what you make the northern star in your life matters as to how you are going to live your life. Paul knows this well, and we know he knows this well because of the very structure of his entire letter. Remember the basic structure of, that we've been operating under for the book of Romans that Greg laid out even for us last week. One, chapters 1 through 11 are gospel doctrine. Chapter 12 through the first half of 15, gospel relations and this context for transformation from that gospel. The second half of chapter 15 is gospel proclamation and partnership. And then finally here in chapter 16, the fruit and effect of that gospel culture. But notice the order. It matters. Gospel fruit and culture cannot precede gospel doctrine for the very reason that in order to have a community, there must be a common unity around a thing, right? Families gather around a table. Minnesota fans should gather around the Vikings. The thing we gather around must be defined first before we get, gather around it. Otherwise, we don't have unity in common because we don't know what we're gathered around. We can both be fans, but the object of our fandom matters, right? What we think informs what we love, and what we love informs what we do. People who think and love similar things, they tend to get together. Thus, you have community. And when that thing you gather around is something as earth-shattering and life-transforming as the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have something tighter than just a community. You have a family, a body with different members. You have a church. So, in order to maintain the fellowship of faith, Paul exhorts the believers in Rome to mark well these among him that are among them that are causing division. Be watchful. Look out for such people. And how are they to know who the dissenters are? Because they will be the ones, verse 17, who teach contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And what doctrine have the Romans been taught? The first 11 chapters of Romans. If you get Romans 1 through 11 right, the fruit described in chapters 12 through 16 will be discernible and evident 
by unity. So, that's what these rabble-rousers do. They divide. But why are they doing it? What motivates them to divide the body of Christ? Remember, what you do is informed by what you love. Look at verse 18 with me. For such persons. Notice the contempt in Paul's tone here. That, that, could, that phrase, such persons, could be translated into those sort of people. Folks of that ilk or that kind. Paul clearly has a category of them as imposters. These, the, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. What do they love and what do they believe? Not Christ. At the heart of their motivation is idolatry. Even though they may claim Christ with their mouths, their actions of divisions and false teachings reveal their true motivations. They're not Christians. In fact, Paul has mentioned these very people already in the letter, all the way back in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. At the root of all human sin is idolatry. It is a rejection of God as God and a replacement of it with something else in his place. It's the worshiping the creation rather than the creator. So because these dividers love themselves and not Christ, they are divisive. And their method of division is not by coming in with violence, persecution, but rather smooth talk and flattery. Paul here is not warning the Roman church of the state-sponsored persecution. They had already experienced that. Acts 18, uh, when Paul arrives in Corinth for the first time, describes him meeting Priscilla and Aquila, names of people mentioned in Romans 16, these saints. These two saints listed in that letter, it, Acts 18 describes him meeting them in Corinth, and they are in Corinth because they had been exiled by the emperor, along with all the other Christians in Rome. So they had experienced persecution. In fact, Paul himself was a persecutor of the church. That type of persecution is not what Paul's talking about here. As history will tell us, that type of persecution tends to have the opposite of the intended effect. The church typically unifies, fortifies, and multiplies under that type of persecution. No, what Paul has in mind here in Romans 16 is a much more insidious threat. As verse 20 will show us, he has in mind that clever serpent of the garden. And he, that, that serpent did not put a sword to Eve's throat and force her to eat the fruit of the garden against her will, but he did it by twisting God's words and enticing her to doubt God's goodness. The way into the body is through division, not through oppression. In, his, in a homily given by early church father John Chrysostom, he comments on the seriousness of these divisions when he says this, For this, if anything, the subversion of the church, 
the being in divisions. This is the devil's weapon. This turneth all things upside down. For so long as the body is joined into one, he has no power to get an entrance. But it is from division that offense cometh. There are wolves seeking lambs. And like all wolves, they seek out the vulnerable, who Paul calls the naive. I don't know about you guys, but I sometimes get these texts or emails from unknown addresses, usually about classmates or your car's extended warranty or who knows what. (laughs) They always have this hyperlink or a place for action for you to click here to access the money or click here to see this embarrassing photo of you from high school or put your social security number here. (laughs) At that point, I'm sure you're thinking, surely people don't fall for this, right? And you think, who would? (laughs) But according to the FBI's Crime Complaint Center of IC3, in the last calendar year alone, in America alone, there have been 2.8 million reports of scam, adding up to $6.9 billion of loss. (laughs) If humans are susceptible to that, we can be susceptible to doctrine, to be led astray in doctrine. The second command that Paul has in this first section is the clearest of them all. They're not just to be on the lookout for such charlatans, but when they have been identified to do the most important thing, avoid them. Stay away. In the original language, it's an emphatic, emphatic statement. In fact, the NIV gets the sense better when it says, keep away from them. Don't just avoid them. Put space between you and them. Do not allow them into your midst. This enemy is particularly dangerous because it's clever sophisticated, well-spoken, charming. It's, this is not Apollyon from Pilgrim's Progress or, Saint, or the dragon from St. George and the Dragon. Hideous creatures who are easily identified as foes. Rather, these are like the sirens in the Odyssey, calling, singing, enticing Ulysses to steer his ship into the rocks and destroy him and his men. They're a virus. Once allowed into the, into the body, they multiply. So Paul says, don't play with that fire. When presented with the snake in the garden, you do what Adam should have done. You crush its head and throw it out. It leads us to the second point, the second charge that Paul gives to the Romans, and by extension us. Number two, stay alert. Stay away, stay alert. Verse 19 begins with an encouragement. Apparently, the Roman Christians had a reputation for obedience. And it's such a reputation that the entire world has heard of it. Paul mentions this again at the beginning of the letter, Romans 1, verse 8. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So Paul joins the chorus of the universal and global church at the reputation of the gospel witness that seems to be emanating out of this raucous city of Rome. And it's worth noting that the thing that's made its way, the the message that's made its way around the world is the report of the church's obedience. And as we know, having walked through the letter, obedience is a big deal to Paul. Listen to what Doug Moo's commentator says regarding the theme of obedience in the letter to Romans. He says this, The gospel Paul presents in Romans is a life-transforming message. Faith in Christ must always be accompanied by obedience to him as Lord. 
The gospel is not truly understood or responded to unless it has changed the people it addresses. The lordship of Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit must inevitably change the way we think and thus ultimately the way we live. So Paul in 1619 is praising the Romans for doing just that. The gospel fruit that can only be produced from gospel transforms hearts has been proclaimed across the entire empire. Can you imagine? The church in Rome was not likely this massive gathering, this massive church that met down on Main Street, across from the Colosseum, adjacent to the Senate and the the Palace of Augustus. No, or with a huge steeple stretching up into the sky to mark, here's where all the Christians meet. No, it's likely that the church in Rome was made up of small gatherings that met in a few people's homes. There was no internet, there's no tweets of inspirational quotes or Instagram posts showing the cool aesthetic. The entire world had come to know of this small church simply by word of mouth reports of the lives they lived in obedience to God in a sinful city. The aroma of the gospel community had outweighed the stench of the sinful city. And in that, Paul rejoices. What would that look like for that to be said of Emmaus Road Church? I personally can attest to hearing reports from your pastors over these past four years of tremendous joy that you have brought them, not just in numerical growth, but in your obedience to Christ. So be encouraged, friends, that the report of your obedience has and will continue to bring joy to your pastors and will continue to be a a message and witness to the watching world. However, just on the heels of Paul's praise is his exhortation. And when Paul is encouraging and celebrating the saints, he still has in mind those people who seek to tear apart this unity, who seek to undermine this message. In fact, it's likely that the very fact that the universal advertisement of the gospel that comes out of Rome has put a target on the back of that church. It's inviting these swindlers. To that end, Paul desires for them in verse 19 to be wise to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. That phrase, it calls to mind a lot of Paul's letters and writings where he exhorts people to not be children who are easily deceived, but it's hard to miss the connection here to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, where he says to his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Paul desires the church to maintain its integrity in the midst of its growth. He congratulates them on their obedience and their teachability, but warns them to exercise wisdom and shrewdness so that the very thing, the very openness that has and teachability that has opened them up to gospel instruction, that it not open too wide as to invite false teaching. In fact, if the Roman church, with its worldwide reputation of gospel fruit and obedience, were to be swindled, what a discouraging and injurious effect that would have on the small churches spread throughout the empire. So, we must stay alert even as we build. Like the Israelites rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah, we must have in one hand our shovel and one hand our sword. How do we do this? Answer, gospel community. 
community that is shaped and defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ, wonderfully and powerfully described throughout the book of Romans, is the antidote to false teaching. Our missional communities are a perfect place for this to practice. When Jamie and I left Sioux Falls back in 2018, there were three to four missional communities that made up Emmaus Road Church. Four years later, there are nine, officially, with many bursting at the seams, moving the number more towards 13 to 14. Emmaus Road's vision from the beginning has always been to have one missional community for every 1,000 people in Sioux Falls. Current population is just north of 202,000. So we're making progress. We're, <laughs> we're making progress. But as we do, we must be alert. That's Paul's warning. We must be alert. Not to shun those who don't know Christ. That would defeat the purpose of missional communities, right? And that's not Paul's aim in giving this warning but not to be naive that there are those who seek to infiltrate and twist the words of God to fit their own purposes. Helpful way to frame this, commentator, theologian John Stott gives us some practical advice on how to be discerning when he writes this. There are three valuable tests to apply to different systems of doctrine and ethics. Biblical, Christological, moral tests. We could put them in forms of questions in form of question about any kind of teaching we come across. One, does it agree with Scripture? Two, does it glorify the Lord Jesus? Three, does it promote goodness? So, stay away from the wolves. Stay alert that they won't necessarily look like wolves. And finally, number three, stay assured. Paul ends this section by highlighting the sovereign God. While he was speaking of divisions and unruliness and wolves within our midst, he now draws our eyes up to the almighty God who stands over all of it. Hear how he ends again in verse 20. He says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Given all that Paul has said throughout this entire letter, and given what he said even these last couple verses at the end of chapter 16, it's telling that he wants to remind these dear brothers of the assurance that they have. The staying away and the staying alert mode that he exhorts them to has the feeling of wartime provisions, right? And that's right. He does not want them or us to be naive that we are in a war, in a battle. However, this battle, ultimately this war, does not have an uncertain outcome. The hope that this should engender in us is the same as the hope it would have engendered to the Roman believers' hearts. We do not serve a God who is in gridlock with the enemy, just struggling to get the upper hand, who desperately needs our help in order to win the war. No, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. The language here is clearly an allusion to Genesis 3.15. The gospel Paul describes throughout the letter, it finds its root. The foundations go all the way back to the beginning in the garden, immediately after the fall. In addressing and cursing the serpent, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise, the NIV translates that, crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. By connecting to this ancient text, Paul is identifying ultimately that the allegiance of the agitators belongs not to God, but to 
the serpent. Their strategy is the same as the serpent's. Their fealty belongs to Satan because they're part of the seed of that serpent. The real divisions is between the seed of the woman, Christians, and the seed of the serpent, everybody else. That division is put there by God. I will put enmity. It's put there by God for the good of his people to preserve that they might be preserved until the climactic fulfillment of this promise when the snake crusher ultimately arrives, appears, puts an end to the serpent's futile attempts to be God. And that word peace, it's not just that he puts an end to hostilities. It's typical of Paul to use that title, the God of peace, right? In his benedictions at the end of his letters to highlight that peace will mark the messianic age. And that peace was secured just like what was promised in Genesis at the cross. See, God is a God of peace. And notice, it's not that he rules over peace like it's just this thing that he stands over. He makes peace. And how does he make peace? By crushing the enemy. This is the ultimate hope of Christians. Although the enemy thrashes and lashes out, he has been soundly defeated. He is bound. There is no need to make a distinction here of thinking, is this talking about Jesus at the cross? Is it the ultimate end? Both. It's both. At the cross, Christ secured victory. Through his death and resurrection, he defeated the enemy, won the war. It's done. However, the enemy has not conceded that war and still seeks to take down as many with him as possible. Greg Bonson, uh, in his wonderfully titled book, Victory in Jesus, ends the book with these words. This is the very last page of the book. The fact is that while Satan is alive, he is not well. His power and his kingdom have fallen, and presently he frantically thrashes out his short remaining time. Christ has deposed him, crushed him, shackled him, Christ's followers continue to spoil his house. The only lordship he retains is over the despicable elements of life, symbolized by dung. So, my friends, the way to keep watch, to stay away from those whose aim it is to divide us is simple. Look to Jesus. You see, the gospel, that word, it can feel so monolithic, so featureless. It's used so often amongst us. The gospel-centered this and gospel-centered that and the gospel life and community and blah, blah, blah. But may we never forget that the gospel is the story of the Son of God who took on our countless sins upon his shoulders, that we first were made peace, we secured peace with us. God secured peace with us first. That's the gospel. Right? He paid for our sins for them at the cross to satisfy the demands of his perfect holiness and reconciled us back to God. It's the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ who, at the cross, crushed the head of the snake, ascended to heaven, and even now sits at the, hand of the, right, of the right hand of God the Father Almighty. All authority on heaven and earth belongs to him. And he is now, at this very moment, making all enemies his footstool. He is the victor, and all the nations will be gathered before him. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. 
The final day is coming. No one knows the hour, not even the sun, but what is required of us today as the people of this local expression is obedience. Faith in Jesus, obedience to his commands are one and the very same. And in doing so, as Paul said in chapter 8, we're not only co-heirs with Christ, we are conquerors. We will participate in God's victory over the enemy through our obedient gospel witness, cultivated in gospel community. So let Jesus' words ring in our hearts and minds as we close today from John 16.33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we're trusting you. Our dependence, our confidence finds its landing place nowhere else but in you. In all that you are, in all that you have done, you've proven yourself o'er and o'er to us. Oh God, we ask for this wisdom from on high, this this clarity of vision as we look out on the world to, to, to discern between those who seek to twist your word and those who seek ultimately to love your word. We know that you have for us and for yourself a people in this city, more to be added to our number. So God, we're dependent on you. We look to you and all that you've done. You are the conquering king. We rest in that. Father, would you give us grace? Would you give us your spirit? Would you move amongst us? As we cultivate this community amongst ourselves, would you sharpen us with one another and give us peace, we ask. All this in the victorious Christ's name. Amen.